Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 1 of the Jamie Club Podcast. That's it, we've been doing this for seven years. Uh, But this show won't be a reflection on those previous seasons. Um, We've had generally enough reflections in the previous two episodes, uh, finishing off Season 6. However, I do think there are a couple of things that I did miss out which I would like to address here. One is my attendance in 2023 of the Martial Arts Festival. Under the kind invitation of Matt State, I delivered a short talk on the Animal Instincts Program. That's my children's self-protection qualification for people interested in teaching self-protection to children. Anyway, I delivered that talk and I also delivered a Vagabond Warriors cross-training workshop which was attended by the likes of Tommy Joe Moore and other open-minded martial artists. And I have to give uh, full credit to Tommy. He is everything what a martial artist should be. He actively competes in full contact competition, that is in the form of unlicensed boxing competitions. We've had him on the show. He's a great teacher on the the HEMA side of martial arts, whether that's teaching Bartitsu or pugilism. He regularly attends events held by other martial artists, and he's both that brilliant balance of healthy scepticism and critical thinking with due respect to the traditional arts and I saw Tommy attending virtually every seminar that he wasn't teaching essentially so he was there teaching his own one-hour seminars at the festival but he was attending everybody else's wherever he could and he linked up with me at the end of the day where I was able to meet up with Lee Hasdell who I hope to be having a discussion with on the show for this season. Lee Hasdell being a pioneer of mixed martial arts in Britain. He really was one of the first to push the new wave of mixed martial art that started in the 1990s. But still then, as he is now, taking the Japanese angle, that's the global rules uh, MMA approach. And uh, that made for a very interesting seminar, which I attended, or workshop, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, It was supposed to be an hour's uh, training. We went well over time and Lee was generous with his information knowledge and time to just to spread the word about what he teaches and he's got far more to offer than just mixed martial arts and um, he's very into the traditional arts and teaching them in a way that is very genuine so i look forward to chatting with lee hopefully on this show uh, in the near future the other event of course was the tyson fury versus francis and garno exhibition boxing match fury won a controversial split decision against the mixed martial artists 
many people thought this was going to be much like the Conor McGregor exhibition bout where Floyd Mayweather predictably gave Conor McGregor a boxing lesson. I mean, Conor McGregor clearly gave a good account of himself, uh, but the result was, as you would anticipate, of a recently retired, undefeated world champion versus a mixed martial artist who was entering his first professional boxing match. But um, he was clearly out of his league. And the way Floyd Mayweather uh, acted was the way that we should have been expecting Tyson Fury to act with Francis Ngannou. Instead, Fury went for this bizarre tactic of trying to clinch someone who has far more experience at the clinch range. If you're going to have a competition and the person you're fighting is fighting within the sport you're most comfortable in competing in, in fact, the sport you are top of, then it's not advisable to then try tactics that are better developed in your opponent's chosen sport. So why would you try to clinch with somebody who takes regular wrestling training? Wrestling is a huge part of mixed martial arts in fact it's probably the dominant range the clinch is probably the dominant range the range that links the other two ranges of stand up and ground why would you try and clinch somebody who's got far more experience dealing with the clinch and that's the tactic that Tyson Fury tried to use and completely to his detriment and so yes I was expecting to see Tyson Fury completely dominate this fight, work from the outside, box clever, as he does do. Uh, I do think he's one of the most interesting, exciting uh, personalities in boxing. He's a great uh, technician and, you know, usually delivers excellent fights. However, in this instance, the strategy just completely baffled me. But, you know, that to one side, this was a great day for mixed martial arts. This should have been the day where people in the boxing world should be sitting up and listening. They should be looking at uh, a fighter like Francis Ngannou and saying, wow, <laughs> you know, this is what someone's doing, completely stepping outside of their comfort zone, just using one of the component arts they use as a support skill and matching the world level competitor from their particular sport, from boxing. In my book, Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, I republished, re-edited an article I wrote called Mixed Martial Arts and the Quest for Integrity. I believe, uh, looking now, a good 10 years on from when I wrote that particular article, that Mixed Martial Arts has done enough to win respect of the world at large. So the boxing world was always looking down on it. Uh, it considered the fighters to be substandard. Uh, they thought it to be um, an example of uh, degradation in combat sports and the people, the fighters in mixed martial arts to be um, far beneath the calibre of a professional boxer. I think with this particular exhibition bout, we've seen that this is no longer the case, um, if it ever was. Uh, and mixed martial artists and the uh, sport of mixed martial arts is now of the, the same standing as professional boxing. So um, we know that now from both a technical basis, but also by the way that the business is being organised, the way that mixed martial arts, only the Ultimate Fighting Championship, adapted during covid uh, the way uh, diversification is shown in mixed martial arts, uh, female fighters certainly have a higher level of respectability and a higher level of exposure than female boxers. 
So on the whole, I think uh, this particular exhibition bout, not a great showing for the great Tyson Fury. It's quite unfortunate. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see him fight Usyk. Um, I'd love to see the belts unified. Uh, we've, at the time of this particular podcast, the belts um, aren't unified and it's been over 20 years, which is really a disgrace uh, to boxing, to the sport of boxing, that we haven't had an undisputed world heavyweight champion. Uh, so, in, you know, that's a classic example of, uh, of a lot of boxing's demise. Um, I read a book last year uh, called The Arc of Boxing, which uh, I'm, I'd like to talk about more on this particular show, uh, not on this uh, particular episode, but certainly in the future is when I'll be referencing. Uh, there's a lot in there uh, from a lot of boxing experts who have noticed how since the 1950s there has been a gradual decline and we've seen an acceleration of that decline uh, since after the 1990s. So uh, we get fighters like uh, Tyson Fury who stand out, but what we do see as well is that that boxing isn't in as a good a state as mixed martial arts by comparison obviously it's still earning far more money it's still a, a harder hitter in that respect but overall uh, mixed martial arts better representation better organization better adaptability and the athletes are very much standing toe-to-toe with the boxers now On to our first question, and never one to shirk controversy. Paul Church of Black Dragon Freestyle Martial Arts asks, Would you say Krav Maga is the ultimate plagiarist concept? So, moving on with the last two questions from the Facebook group. Never one to shirk controversy. Paul Church of Black Dragon Freestyle Martial Arts asks, would you say Krav Maga is the ultimate plagiarist concept? It's hard to regard anything in martial arts as plagiarism. As my old friend Chris Rowan said on my first cross-training in the martial arts documentary, quote, unquote, no one has a monopoly on knowledge. Rather appropriately, that quote did not originate with him. Part of the reason why I chose the multi-beast symbol of the Chimera was my cross-training approach. Similarly, Krav Maga identifies as a hybrid martial art. Today, it is probably the most recognised form of codified reality-based self-defence. This particular subculture of martial arts has often adopted an antagonistic approach in its publicity. The very title, reality-based, implies that other systems of combat are not based in the real world. Such implications, and often outright accusations, that other martial arts practices are delusions on violence outside of the training hall or competition area, is going to create understandable pushback. Detractors are pretty much challenged and poked, despite the fact that most martial arts began from a position of opposition. Most martial arts founders are rebels, they're sceptics, they think critically, and their actual martial arts system is often a critique of the system from which they claim parentage. The pushback to Krav Maga is going to be exacerbated by the strong commercial presence of the martial art. Is it that Krav Maga plagiarises more than other martial arts systems, or are we just given it this impression by its marketing machine? To paraphrase and maybe plagiarise the Bible, quote, nothing is new under the sun except the very old, end quote. 
Like many forms of RBSD, Krav Maga uses the real-world background of its point of origin as part of its validation. The fact that it was taught to Jewish paramilitary groups and later gained official approval through the Israeli Defence Forces helps to sell its appeal for being a method that uses strategies, tactics and techniques that are used in the field. However, its founder, Imi Lichtenfeld, remained transparent about the art's parentage through Aikido, Judo, Karate, Boxing and Wrestling. A cursory search of the internet yields similar stories. Not all mention the cross-training beginning, but this appears to be down to space constraints, such as the one on the Premier Martial Arts page. Wherever it is clear the writer wishes to give a more in-depth account of Krav's heritage, such as the one prefer- such as the one written for Krav Maga Worldwide, there is plenty said about Lichtenfeld's success as a competitive boxer and a wrestler who was forced to adapt these skills for fighting against anti-Semitic rioters in Bratislava in latter-day Slovakia. The International Krav Maga Federation mentions the, mentions the adapted boxing and wrestling and also states their founders' experience in quote-unquote other martial arts but doesn't name-check judo, aikido and karate. However, there are pictures of both Lichtenfeld and his students wearing dogies as well as other teachers wearing the more familiar branded Krav Maga t-shirt uniform. Bombastic advertising campaigns might boast about Krav being more effective than other martial arts. It may have a good deal of dubious instructors making fallacious arguments and Krav has committed the usual sins that put it in the company of most large-scale martial arts operations. But I'm not quite sure if it was big on pushing an immaculate creation myth. The immaculate creation myth consists of rewriting martial arts history. There are a few cases where this myth comes from a place of ignorance rather than any intentional misleading. For example, we don't really know the true lineage of boxing, but I'm more inclined to believe it evolved as a spin-off from a recently extinct school of German fencing than as a part of a living tradition that can be traced back to ancient Greece. However, there are plenty of examples of martial arts that purposely expunged their combat parentage and created new, often ethnocentric, lineages. Alex Gillis's A Killing Art takes us through this process for Taekwondo. Master Choi Hong Hai very carefully wielded politics, his own creativity, and the talents of his most senior students to transform what was essentially imported Shotokan karate into the art of Taekwondo we know today, complete with its own mythological Korean backstory. Similarly, Muay Thai is not just a modern sporting adaption of Muay Baran, as many crews would have us believe. We can see from film footage of the 1930s, 40s and even 50s that the art rapidly synthesised judo and boxing that were part of the Thai education system during the early 1900s. 1930s Muay Thai displays none of the basic punches that are taught today. 1940s Muay Thai sees these punches being thrown more in line with boxers of the day and less like the heavy quote-unquote Thai strikes we see today. Even the signature Thai round kick seems absent and in its place is the now obsolete inside crescent kick. 1950s Muay Thai pretty much shows the sport as we know today except with far looser rules on takedowns. Here we can see techniques such as the cross buttock throw present in judo, and once a mainstay of pre-20th century bare-knuckle boxing. Savat was fairly open about its adopting of boxing techniques taken from the UK and synthesised through the systems of Boxe Francais. However, it appears that some other martial arts owe a debt to its kicking. 
Its whip-like round kick, for example, has become one of karate's trademark techniques to the Mawashigeri, despite none of the traditional schools having anything in their original katas. Karate's so-called traditional point sparring, where this particular technique excels, owes this form of kumite, which is only just over a century old, to kendo. Prior to changing the kanji in its title, karate did not hide its lineage to China. Even after the political move to change its translation from China hand to empty hand, there does not appear to be any attempt made by the Okinawans or Japanese to deny the art's Chinese origins. In fact, it has only been in recent times that more due credit has been given to the clear indigenous Okinawan martial art influences on karate's early development. However, the Savat round kick, which has found its way into karate and then to both major schools of Taekwondo, as well as Hapkido, Tang Sudo, Kong Sudo, and arguably many Chinese martial arts, is only honoured in the smallest of historical communities, despite it being supported by a lot of compelling primary source evidence. Krav Maga, of course, has a grading system. However, these can be quite different depending on the group. For example, the International Krav Maga Federation has three levels, practitioner, graduate and expert. Each level is divided up into its own five sub-levels. These are indicated by the uniforms worn for each of the three levels and their patches which indicate their progress within the sub-levels. Whereas Krav Maga worldwide adopts a familiar coloured belt approach using a total of five belts ending in the black belt which then progresses in degrees. Like most martial arts, no matter how far removed they seem from the original source, Krav Maga owes a debt to Kano Jigoro. With Krav having judo in its original DNA along with two other martial arts, Aikido and especially karate, that adopted the ranking structure, it doesn't seem unsurprising that Krav would also look to rank their students and teachers in such a way. However, as discussed in the Fearmus and the Belt of Contention episode, many other martial arts have totally denied credit to Kano and gone so far as to create elaborate stories about the origins of their grading system. In conclusion... Accusing any martial art of plagiarism is a difficult argument. Has Krav Maga's advertising and marketing campaigns come over as especially obnoxious in their attitude? Yes, it's part of the nature of their subculture, and they are the biggest players in that field from a commercial perspective. So we shouldn't excuse it, but we shouldn't be surprised either. Although it doesn't comfortably fit under the RBSD banner, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Kung Fu are not exempt from this particular charge. Has the Krav marketing machine been audacious in the way they've jumped on current trends? Yes, this is certainly true. But then again, this was a criticism put against a lot of traditional martial arts, rightly and wrongly, during the advent of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Paul Church referred to a Krav Maga instructor course he attended where teachers were passing off clearly Filipino-based knife work as being a superior version already in their art, And he also noticed similar claims being made in the press about ground-fighting concepts that clearly were Brazilian jiu-jitsu in nature. I cannot comment on this, as I haven't witnessed such claims being made, but it doesn't surprise me. A search on the internet of Krav Maga, or even on its Wikipedia page, shows a lot of contradictory pictures of different martial arts practices. One moment, we have face-ripping RBSD pornography, where only the most primal techniques are being taught, and the next, we have someone throwing a vertical round kick to the head. None of this is excused as attribute training. This is all part of Krav Maga, a highly effective reality-based self-defence system. From what I can gather, Krav Maga has diversified a lot over the years. It's had more than its own fare of politics. 
However, there are some amazing people who have qualified and held the banner for CRAV. People like Tammy Yard McCracken and Jessica Jones are challenging the RBSD status quo on teaching more information on managing domestic violence. Aidan Carroll, an extremely effective teacher of self-protection courses, was the Republic of Ireland's representative before he created his own hard target system. Only recently, I trained with and alongside some Krav Maga teachers at Motig's Tactical Research and Development Group. Several of these practitioners were very open about the other martial arts they were regularly cross-training in and using to complement their own personal interpretation of Krav Maga. Mo, of course, is the person I call coach and perhaps my biggest ongoing inspiration in teaching and training. He is also a qualified Krav Maga instructor. So, there is no denying the diverse yet good quality of the many people who have trained in Krav Maga up to a high level of proficiency. This is no argument against the claims of plagiarism. Paul's individual examples are fair points, but no different from the small sample of other offenders I've just discussed. That is why his stories do not surprise me. On the whole, I am not totally convinced, simply because the art does not deny its hybrid heritage and the Krav instructors, I know, do not make immaculate creation myth claims. However, as always, I am open to more research and investigation. Martial arts are not entities, and there are no sacred cows on this show. We'll be back after a quick break. When Parents Aren't Around, A Young Person's Guide to Self-Protection has been completely updated and re-released as an ebook. Please note, if you already have a copy of the original, ignore Amazon's statement that you already own this book. Not only has the entire text been revised and re-edited, but also new material has been added, including a new chapter and photographs throughout depicting scenarios and training drills. My intention is to get this work out to the people who need it the most, therefore I've taken a third off the original ebook price. And for the first time in the history of its publication, When Parents Aren't Around is available as a paperback. These editions contain all the new material previously described. You can order copies from Amazon, or if you would like a signed copy, you can order directly from me via the usual email address. Let me know if your club would like a bulk order too. Be a part of the change in booking me to run a seminar based on the material and help launch the book. The next question is clearly a little too specific to be considered hypothetical. Due to its personal nature, I won't be crediting the author. However, I hope my answer will help. The rather sensitive question is as follows. How do you equip yourself with defence as a woman against a sexual bully in the workplace in a foreign country when you're dependent on that person to give you a job which houses you and feeds you and that person is in a position of power over you? It starts small, and before you know it, you're locked into a relationship you don't really want to be in. This is something that should be talked about. I couldn't agree more, and since I began writing my response, the member has confirmed what appeared obvious. This was not a hypothetical question. However, I'm very relieved to know that the problem was dealt with a while back. The police were involved, and the victim is now safe and getting on with her life. It's very easy to make sweeping statements from the sidelines that seem obvious to everyone who isn't directly involved with the actual incident. However, my advice has been asked, and it is with a sense of genuine concern that I offer it now. This isn't to say that I think any proactive response is easy. Self-protection is not easy. It can be brutally simple, but the closer one gets to the crisis point, the more difficult the execution. 
Personal safety is a priority regardless of the situation, regardless of the stakes, regardless of the level of threat. Self-protection is all about taking control, and that means severing the control an offender has over the defender as quickly as possible. The situation in question is an example of an insidious assault. In this case, an individual in a position of authority has abused their power status and breached boundaries. I've later learned that this assault not only took the form of sexual harassment, but also direct violence on a few occasions. Points to consider here are identify the early stages of the assault as soon as possible. The sooner you can establish boundaries, the sooner these boundaries can be better enforced, established, and the more control a potential victim has going forward. The victim grows with confidence the earlier the boundaries are set. The predator grows with confidence the later the boundaries are set. Don't get into a state of denial. Trust your instincts. If something doesn't feel right, if someone behaves in a way that sets off an uneasy feeling, there is usually a good reason. Use these instincts to inform protective behaviours. Avoid situations that give the potential predator an opportunity to get close. Record everything with dates and times and get witnesses. Recruiting allies wherever possible is essential. This particular case is difficult due to the huge power advantage the controlling predator had in place. Nevertheless, with immediate safety as a priority, leaving the place of work clearly takes much of that power away. And I appreciate, given the nature of the context of the situation, how difficult that would be. Ultimately, the person being targeted took the right course of action in getting the police involved. For the most part, this needs to be done as soon as possible. In most situations, and I appreciate just how nuanced contexts can make self-protection, the victim needs to remember a criminal offence is being committed against them. The job of the police should be to uphold and enforce the law. With that in mind, I'm reminded just how difficult the justice system has been and continues to be for female victims of sexual assault. The Me Too movement seems to have made some headway regarding societal norms surrounding domestic abuse and what happens when women report a sexual assault, but it would be naive to say there isn't a long way to go. It heartens me to see the emergence of a burgeoning area of self-protection education that specialises in giving women the tools to handle these most common of violent crimes perpetuated against them. This is a huge subject I cannot do justice here, but will likely be returning to in future episodes and with special guests. 2024 is the 20th anniversary year of Club Chimera Martial Arts. Perhaps I will write a reflective episode on that journey. Although, if you would like to see my frame of mind during those first 10 years, please check out my book, Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings. This year, we certainly have some very exciting things in store. I have a new general self-protection seminar incorporating all the latest information and teaching methods I have learned. Let me know if you'd like to host me or book me for your club or association. Please get into contact through the usual channels. My email address is on the website, but social media is fine too. I'm also looking to run it as an open event in the Oxfordshire area. The same applies to a new seminar, which serves as something of a sequel or a spin-off from the foundational self-protection, where my co-teacher, Lee Sims, and I will be focusing entirely on edged weapon awareness and defence training. This is something Lee and I have been discussing for quite some time, and I believe we've created something very special here. 
Whilst on the subject of Lee, he'll be returning as a guest on the show to discuss the growing problem regarding the law on carrying offensive weapons. There has been a rise in misinformation put out by retailers selling quote-unquote self-defence weapons in the UK, where buyers are being convinced to break the law. With the rise in violent crime in recent years, fear of crime has understandably also increased, and that creates a ready market for the vulnerable who need apparent quick solutions. On the subject of opportunism, I have full intentions of returning to the way of the vulture. The same could be said for the Ballad of Igor. These were two subjects that ended up taking more of my time than I'd anticipated. Seeing that I'm not alone with podcasts that do this, please be patient for their continuation. The biggest planned CCMA-associated event of 2024 will be the launch of the Animal Instincts Teaching Programme. Mary Stevens of the Athena School of Karate has partnered with me to create not only four age-appropriate children's self-protection programs developed to maximise retention of information and to ensure realistic and maintainable behaviours in students, but also a thorough teaching qualification. As I've been promising in my When Parents Aren't Around promos, this will be the first time CCMA will officially approve and grade a teacher under their banner. We've got loads to say about these programmes, so please stay tuned to the podcast and follow our social media to learn more. Very soon we'll be releasing two exclusive Animal Instincts ebooks free to all who sign up for our mailing list. Finally, and back to the subject of guests, I'm looking forward to speaking to the brilliant Jessica Jones of Amazonia Krav Maga on a subject of her choice, but I'm pretty sure she's going to be offering some expert advice and more information on defence against insidious assaults. And at long last, my biggest ongoing inspiration and pool of knowledge, the irrepressible, irreplaceable Motigue. However, the first guest of Season 7 will appear in our next episode. Unified Fighting Systems founder and head instructor Andy Gibney will be taking my Everything is Martial Arts concept in a rather interestingly innocent direction as we discuss Winnie the Pooh. Happy New Year! My other books, Wrong Foo and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Foo is a prequel to my Bullshit Zoo and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com the details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltail or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last TikTok. 
Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there as well as filming of my various lessons so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.